0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I heard a story once about a teacher who was trying to get her little class to understand arithmetic, and she asked James in the class, she said, James, suppose your mother made a peach pie, and there were ten of you at the table, mom and dad and eight children, what slice would you get? What would be the, the fraction of the slice that you would get? And James spoke up and he said, I'd get a ninth. The teacher said, hold on a second, James. I want to make sure you understand this. There are 10 of you at the table, your mom and your dad and the eight children. What is the fraction that you would get? Don't you know your fractions? James spoke up and he says, yes, I know my fractions, but I also know my mom. And my mom would not take a slice of the pie. She would give extra to all of us that were around the table. Folks, uh, that is my mom. And many of you have moms that were like that or are like that, who are going to be selfless and sacrificial and put others in front of them over and over and over again. As mothers are known for their sacrifices and selflessness, so churches must be known... For the fidelity of their doctrine and the love of others that undergirds their ministry. We're gonna be looking at a text in First Timothy chapter five, verses one through sixteen. That text follows on a period of, of sections of scripture where Paul has taught Timothy to make sure that the church is sound in doctrine, knows what they believe, knows how they're to be structured, knows how things are to happen in the life of the church. And he moves into chapter 5 and 6, and he's dealing with not just not, not now what the church believes, in the sense of what doctrine are you to hold, but he's moving into this section of Scripture where he's talking about how the church should behave how the church should minister to one another, how the church should care about those in their midst, and particularly or specifically in these 16 verses, he's talking about the church and how it interacts with widows in the community, in the community of faith. So we're going to read this text, if we will, and we're going to look at some instructions for church ministry from this passage of Scripture. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day." But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are really widows. Look at five specific instructions for different categories of people in the life of the church. Uh, and we'll walk through these rather quickly. I hope that you'll be encouraged by this passage of Scripture and also encouraged in the way that we behave toward those around us. Let me first give a word to the ministers or to those who are in leadership. Paul begins verses 1 and 2. He says, treat others respectfully. That's the word to ministers. He said to, to men who are older, treat them with respect To men who are your own age, make sure you uh, talk to them like brothers. To women who are older, treat them like mothers. Honor and respect them and lift them up and encourage them. And to younger women, treat them like sisters in all purity. I'll tell you this, if pastors throughout the last two millennia of church history had treated everyone in their congregation this way, there would be far less division and frustration in church life. Now, there there are divisions in churches that happen from congregation members and other church leaders, but the reality is that pastors have caused problems simply because they have acted in a way that's disrespectful to their elders, that doesn't treat ladies in the church with the proper respect. Some in this situation, if you look over into 2 Timothy, Paul seems to give some indication that some of the problem with some of the elders in the church, or some that were false teachers, was that they were leading silly women astray. Maybe some of these young widows, they were, they were taking advantage of them, treating them not in a way that is pure. In other words, the word to the ministers is essentially to treat others respectfully. This goes a little bit with the section previously, as Paul's talking about pastors, and church leaders. It also goes with the next section, beginning in verse 17, talking about how elders are to serve in the life of the church. That's the word to the ministers. Let me give you a, a general word to both widows and women. And this comes in the next section, verses 3 through 16, and we'll break out some specifics in light of that. And this is the word to widows and women. Embody characteristics of honorable Christianity. Now, Paul's going to talk a lot here about what the family's responsibility is to widows, what the church's responsibility is, and really, practically, that's what he's doing. He's given us instruction for how the church is to care for those who need care and compassion. But there's something that undergirds this section that I want us to pay attention to. Paul is commending characteristics and ways of behavior. He's undergirding what it looks like to be a godly lady in the life of the church, whether it is someone who is married and has a family, or whether it's someone who in this situation of the text finds themselves in the position of widowhood or a need. And widowhood was a serious need in the New Testament culture. In other words, widowhood could be severe in the Greco-woman world, since women were usually not the direct heirs of their husband's wills. Rather, the widow had her dowry as well as any stipulation which was made to his heirs to take care of them. In other words, if the son or sons did not care for their mother, then a woman could find herself in a situation where she was dire and couldn't provide for herself financially if her dowry was not substantial. So so one of the things that was taking place in the Greco-Roman world is there were some women whose husbands had passed away who found themselves in a situation where they couldn't meet their daily needs. You've got to remember, Paul is writing to a culture and to a day and an age that's 2,000 years removed from our own. There have been a lot of advances in culture for women to both have jobs and have careers and have financial stability on their own, either individually or as a part of a household and in the New Testament Greco-Roman era, that was just not the case through and through. Now, there were some that had plenty of resources. Paul even reflects on some in the text who are doing fine financially and don't need the specific care of the church. The word honor there in verse 3 it means to take care of, to respect and hold up, but in some, in, it really it, it holds with it the idea of caring for someone financially. And he's going to go on to say, let those be cared for financially by the church and their families who really have a need to be cared for financially. He's going to provide some qualifications, meaning that those who are widows should be added to the list of church care if they have a financial need, right? If there is a need for the church to care for them first. And second, secondly, if they have the, the spiritual qualities that should be embodied by a godly follower of Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying we're not going to honor financially those who are living in a way that's inconsistent with the values that the Bible uh, says that we're to live by. The picture is Paul is saying essentially we don't want to uh, affirm ungodly or wicked behavior. That's the picture that Paul is getting at here in this text. Uh, John Stott put it this way, talking about widows and those who are destitute He says, Scripture has much to say about widows and honors them in a way that most cultures do not. Too often, a married woman is defined only in relation to her husband. Then if he dies, she loses not only her spouse, but her social significance as well. But note this, in Scripture, however, widows, orphans, and aliens, that is, people without a husband, parents, or home, are valued for who they are in themselves and are said to deserve special honor and protection and care. The Bible says, as we've already read in Psalm 68, 5, God is described as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. It's written of Him that He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. You can find that in Deuteronomy ten eighteen, Psalm 146, 9, Proverbs 15, 25. Because this is the kind of God He is, His people are to be the same. In other words, our responsibility and obligation is to care for those who have who have need. And by the way, when you look at this word widow in verse three, and it's continued through in other sections, the Greek word is kara, and it doesn't just mean a woman who has lost her husband. It carries with it the idea a woman who is bereft, a woman who is left alone, a woman who might have been robbed. In other words, in this text, there's an indication that Paul had in mind more than just a lady, a woman who had been widowed. In other words, her husband had died. It carries with it the idea of someone who is isolated, someone who might have been abandoned, someone who might be completely alone, whether that is a situation of being left by an abusive relationship or left by abandonment or left by widowhood. So Paul's indication to the church is that we're to... Think about these who are in this special situation of need, and the church is to care for them. Broadly speaking, there are two sections where Paul talks about this in the text. Beginning in verse 3, he talks about honoring widows and talks about their qualification, making sure they're cared for. And then if you move into verse 9, it says, Let a widow be enrolled. And scholars have differed on how to take these subsequent sections dealing with this same broad topic. Some scholars have have underscored the idea that the first section, verses 3 through 8, is basically how to care for those widows who are in need. In other words, take care of them financially. What does that look like? Verse 9 and following, uh, some scholars have said that this is a secondary ministry role for those women who are widows. In other words, let them be enrolled in a ministry responsibility if they carry these qualifications. Maybe that's the case. I don't find either argument absolutely compelling, so much so that I would tell you this is exactly what it means. What I do want to undergird, though, is that throughout both of these sections, there is a picture of what it means to be a part of the widow ministry in the life of the church. Paul commends behavior... For these ladies, if the church is going to care for them. Notice these characteristics that Paul underscores throughout both of these sections. He says, The widows that are to be enrolled or to be cared for are widows who have set her hope on God and God alone. uh, Ladies who continue in prayer day and night, that's not saying they're on their knees all the time, not doing anything but prayer. It's carrying with it the idea that prayer undergirds all of their behavior. They're continually in prayer, in a conversation with God. How about this one? They're not self-indulgent. In other words, they're not focused on what they get, they're focused on what they give. How about this? They have a reputation for good works. That's a part of the characteristic. You see this in the first section and also the second section. How about this one? They've brought up their children well. Paul talks about that in the next segment. In other words, they were good moms. They They were a good part of a parent team to help their children know what it meant to know Christ and follow Christ in behavior and in conduct. How about this one? They have shown hospitality to others. In other words, they've welcomed others into their family or into their community. They've ministered to those in need. How about this one? They've served the needs of the saints in the community. That's that they've washed feet. Paul's not talking about a specific uh, kind of rite in the life of the church. Washing feet was was a cultural practice in that day and age because everybody wore sandals. When you entered into a house... If you had a servant, the servant's job was to wash the feet of the guests that entered into the house. That's so why Jesus, on that night when he was before he was crucified, what did he do? He took a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. And the implication is that a widow who is to be enrolled in this type of honor and care in the life of the church is someone who served the needs of the community, even if it meant getting down on her hands and knees and washing feet. How about this one? Caring for the afflicted. This is a type of woman who has been given to good works and to good deeds. Here's the commendation that Paul makes. Ladies, if you want a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, that's honored from the text, I'm not saying honored from your kids or for from your church or from your pastor. If you want a picture of what it looks like to be honored from God's Word, you can. you can... Only find a couple of other places in Scripture that are as clear, and as concise, and as direct as First Timothy five, three through sixteen. You want to know what your character emulation should look like? This is what it should look like: someone who sets your hope on God and God alone, not on people, not on husband and on a financial situation, not on your children not putting an idol in place, someone who prays constantly, someone who's not self-indulgent, someone who has a reputation for good works, someone who has parented your children well, mothered your children well, someone who has shown hospitality, served the needs of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and been given to good works and good deeds. You want a character that embodies what God, God desires? That's what it looks like. So a word to you as women and widows embody the characteristics of honorable Christianity. Let me give a word to families, word to the family. Care for your loved ones. I think it's fascinating that in this text, Paul is saying to the church, here's what it looks like for you as a church to minister to widows. But no less than three specific times, and really four times in the way Paul, uh, p- Paul puts it, he says to the family, The family is the first responsible party in caring for someone who is destitute financially or destitute in terms of circumstance. In verse 4, he puts it this way, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There are four reasons that Paul gives for family caring for family in that first circumstance. First, it's to repair a parent's. Because our parents influenced our lives and cared for us and took care of us. And as adult children who, are, who have widows or who have family members who are destitute financially or in terms of singleness or isolation, it's our job as grown children to care for them, to repay them, to please God. It pleases God when you do that. It's also to express and not deny the faith. We'll come back to that point in a moment. And also to relieve the church. So here's the word of the family. Folks, if you have... Family members who are in need, whether they're isolated or in financial need, it is your job as family to take care of them first before handing them over to the church for the church to care for them financially. Uh, and now, this isn't so much a shepherding issue uh, in the sense of the church cares for those who are isolated and alone regardless of their financial need. In our contingency list that we have at the church, which is basically and I'll come back to this in a moment, single adults over the age of 65, we care for those in in a variety of ways through our deacon ministry, through our church ministry, and that doesn't go away, but that doesn't take uh, the responsibility off family to care for those who are isolated and who are alone. And Paul makes it very clear that we have that obligation as Christian family members to care for those who are in need and who are widows. Many of you in our congregation already model this. I've talked to you. I know one of the hardest things that some of you have done in your life is become a full-time caregiver. To a spouse, to a parent, to a grandparent, to a, a handicapped uh, child or grandchild, someone that you have given up career, life, circumstances, freedom in order to care for, some, for someone. Some of you have opened your home to parents Or to in-laws. I remember hearing stories when my mom grew up about how her grandmother was in their house. Because that's just what you did. You you didn't necessarily put grandma or grandpa into a nursing home. You brought them in to your house to live and to take care of them. Some of you have done that. Some of you have spent years of your life caring for a, a debilitating, in terms of health, parent or grandparent. Some of you have had to make a very difficult choice to put a parent or grandparent in a care facility where their needs, physical or psychological, were beyond your ability to care for. And that's just a reality. That's not a lack of care. In some cases, that's the only thing that you could do. Some of you have sacrificed greatly to care for an aging parent or grandparent. And let me say this. Good job. If you have spent time, effort, even finances, to care for a mother or a father, to care for a grandmother or a grandfather. Folks, that's what the Bible says we should do as family members. Can I just say, that's what Paul is saying here. He's telling us as Christian children and grandchildren, we have an obligation first and foremost to care for those who are in financial need or in need in terms of isolation. It's what God expects. But some struggle with this. Just in recent weeks, I talked to a family member who doesn't have any real intention of taking care of a family member that he's responsible for. And it's disappointing. It's heartbreaking to to hear on the phone someone who says, I have basically no intention to fulfill my obligation to care for that loved one in my family. Folks, That's not who we're supposed to be. Notice what Paul says about that kind of person. Get this language. And there are very few places in the Scripture where language is used such so directly. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul doesn't use language like that very often. But he uses it here. Why does he use it here? Because folks, as followers of Jesus who have been redeemed by Christ, we have an obligation to honor our parents. That's from all the way back in the Ten Commandments. Paul reiterated that command in the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, honor your parents. But that honoring doesn't go away. Doesn't go away when our parents get older and we grow older. Maybe the relationship changes. We don't have to obey them like we did when we were eight. But we still have an obligation to honor them. And honoring them means taking care of them. So where do you, as family members, take care of those in your own household? Now, let me offer a caveat. Some of you and some of us are going to face situations where the care of a parent or grandparent exceeds your physical limitations. Some of you can't bring a mom or dad into your home. Some of you can't bring a grandparent into your home. Maybe they're too physically too large for you to pick up and move and take care of. I understand that. God does too. Maybe their uh, their, their their needs, their health needs are beyond your ability to care for. It. And some of you have had to make the very difficult decision to put them in a nursing facility or skilled nursing fa- facility. What I don't want you to do is hear this sermon and walk away feeling guilty that you didn't do enough to take care of them. Some of you, you there's not an option there's not a choice there. What you're responsible for is not to leave them completely isolated and alone. I know some church members who that's exactly what they had to do. With a husband or a father, with with a mom or a dad, they had to put them in a care facility. And then they would go over there every single day to have a conversation. Sometimes, folks, to have the same exact conversation every single day for the rest of that spouse's life, or the rest of that dad's life, or the rest of that mom's life. I just want you to know, we have an obligation to care for, even if it doesn't look like what in our mind is paying a bill or bringing someone into the house. So, word to the family. Let me say this. For those of you that that are young adults, or maybe not as young adults, but you, you have an obligation for this, what you model is what you can expect to receive. I know some are struggling because you have kids in your home and then you have responsibility to an aging parent. And there's a temptation to not take care of an aging, aging parent because you got all this other stuff to do. Your kids are watching that. Just saying when you, your kids are in their 40s or in their 50s and, and your health and your isolation and your care is on the line, if you want to expect them to care for you, then you ought to model that in your own behavior. For those of you that have w- witnessed that, can I get an amen? Because Some of you have seen that. Some of you have cared for your parents because you watched your parents care for their parents. There's a model that's put in place. Let me give a word to the church word of the church is that we're to care for those in need. Quite simply, Paul says those who are really in need, who are destitute, who don't have family members to care for them, we have an obligation to care for those. We have an obligation to come alongside those who are truly destitute and truly in need. And you know what? I've watched our church do this over and over again. I wouldn't embarrass you. But right now, I know church members who have gone above and beyond to care for people in practical ways. I know of church members who have provided meals, child care and other specific necessities. I know of church members who have taken others to doctors' appointments, who have run errands, helped others run errands, make sure they have their needs. I know of church members who have opened their homes for people to come enjoy a meal, or for people to come stay in their home because they didn't have any other place to go. They were truly in this situation of being financially destitute, physically isolated, had no other help, and they have opened their homes and their time and their effort to care for someone who wasn't the easiest person in the world to care for. I know of deacons who regularly check on the ladies and gentlemen on their contingency list. I know of deacons who have mowed lawns and who have fixed things at houses and who have brought meals to those who are on their contingency list to make sure that even though they're physically isolated from normal experiences, they have opportunities to be cared for. Folks, as a church, that's who we're supposed to be. We're to be known not just by our doctrinal fidelity, but by our love for one another. By the way, Pastor Tad, a few weeks ago, preached on the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And he talked about how the church at Ephesus had gotten the theological foundation correct, but missed the love for others. I think it's one of the reasons why Paul in chapter 5 here, 1 Timothy, he moves that direction. He's letting us know it is right to be doctrinally sound, but it is bad if we're doctrinally sound and we forget to love one another. We should love others. Plain and simple, church, it's our responsibility to care for those who are financially and physically destitute and isolated when there's not a family member to care for them. A word to all of us. Let me just give an application. We won't spend a lot of time in that section on the young uh, the young widows. Basically, what Paul says to them is, listen, we don't want to take care of you if you can go find a family and take care of them. Evidently, in that situation, there was a vow that was to be taken not to remarry. And, and I don't know if that meant for ministry, as I've said before, or if that just was a vow that if If you were going to be cared for by the church, you didn't uh, commit to being married again. So Paul encourages those ladies to get married, to have a family, to take care of their family. And he says in verse 13 specifically, those who have nothing else to do with life have a temptation to be idle. So word to all of us, don't be idle. Don't be idle. Paul's admonition to all of us in the room is a reminder that we're to be responsible to follow Christ to love God and to be active in good deeds, not to be isolated, idle, busybodies, and gossips. Evidently, in this church in Ephesus, some of the ladies that were young widows were just were doing just this. They were creating division because they were gossiping. They were going from house to house being busybodies. They were creating division and contention. Paul's not being sexist. That's just simply what was taking place in the text. Fast forward that 2,000 years, I, I, I know of as many men who like to gossip and be busybodies as I have ever heard of women in the life of the church who like to be gossips and busybodies. All of us have a temptation toward those sinful behaviors. And we all struggle with that far worse if we are idle. Gawking, gaping, and gossiping on social media, wasting time on screens and leisure, not fulfilling the purpose of God for our families or for our communities are ways that you and I, instead of being engaged in prayer and in good deeds and in caring for one another, loving God, those are ways that we have a tendency to be idle in our behavior and give opportunity for Satan to create distractions and divisions in our own lives and cause us to sin. And Paul says to all of us, really, that we ought not to be idle. When we think about what Paul commended in this text, he commended a a lifestyle of good deeds and good works. I want you to note what he didn't say. He didn't say to you ladies in the room that you're to do everything, that you're to be all things to all people. He didn't tell you that you have to accomplish all of the things in life that maybe you'd like to. He didn't say that to men either. I want you to get this. Ladies, if all you have ever done is been a good wife and mother, that's plenty enough in terms of the pages of Scripture. Paul commends motherhood. He commends caring for a family. He commends taking care of those in need. Why? Because the eternities of your children and your grandchildren are in some ways, ladies, moms, grandmothers, in your hands in a gloriously unique way. In 2 Timothy, Paul commends Timothy for the faith that he developed, not from his dad, but from his mother and his grandmother. Paul said, this faith was in your grandmother and was in your mother and now is in you. They invested in his life spiritually, and their investment in Timothy's life caused him, raised him up to be a leader in the church, someone who we have two letters written to him, and someone who faithfully pastored this church at Ephesus. Ladies, I just want to say, the influence and the power that you have in terms of influencing your children and grandchildren is a great and powerful influence. It can change eternities, it can change nations, it can change mission environments. Heard of a story about missionary Robert Moffat. You may not be familiar with him, he's a Scottish missionary from the 1800s. Uh, God sent him on uh, a missionary journey to the I- inner uh, continent of Africa. Uh, you may not remember Robert Moffat, but you're familiar with David Livingston. David Livingston, that great missionary who traveled to Africa, traveled to Africa decades after Robert Moffat and married Robert Moffat's daughter, Mary. Robert Moffat, it is said that when he went into the kingdom of God, he took an entire continent with him. So what it said about his influence because he went there, he started mission stations, he learned the language, he preached the gospel in native languages, and he spent the latter part of his missionary career translating scripture into the languages of the peoples. And you know what history tells us is the motivating factor, or one of the primary motivating factors, for Robert Moffat's mission work? It was his mother. Specifically, a kiss that his mother gave him at a specific time in his life. Said that Robert Moffat was trying to figure out what he was going to do next and thinking about going to the mission field, praying about going to the mission field, and was on his way, on a journey, to go get on a boat to go to the mission field, and his mother was walking with him. Was walking with him for a number of those miles. And at the point where she couldn't go any further... She turned and looked at her son and said, will you promise me something? He said, mom, if you'll tell me what you want me to promise you, I'll, 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 I'll promise it to you. She said, no, will you promise me something? He said, he said, mom, will you just let me know what it is? She said, no, it's something you can do. Will you just promise me something? He looked at her and he said this. Very well, mother, I'll do anything you wish. She took his head in her hands and she looked at him in his eyes and she said this, Robert, you're going out into a wicked world, so I want you to begin every day with God and I want you to close every day with God. And then she leaned up into his cheek and she gave him a kiss. And Mission history tells us that that kiss is what made and kept Robert Moffat a missionary. The fact that his mom was so concerned about him being right with the Lord morning and evening because of the wicked world in which we live. That kiss sent him and established him on the mission field. In some ways, you could say that that kiss is what sent millions of Africans to the gospel of Jesus Christ or sent the gospel of Jesus Christ to millions of Africans in that continent through his mission work. Moms, I just want you to hear something. You have an incredible opportunity to influence your children and grandchildren this day by being the godly woman that this text encourages, commends, and inspires. For those of you that are in the room that have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, I just want to tell you something. The gospel tells us that there is forgiveness and hope through Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful for a godly mom who poured that into my life. I'm grateful for a godly mom who poured that into Robert Moffat's life. And I'm grateful for the gospel that has spread to, the neighbor, to our neighbors and the nations through many of you, ladies and gentlemen, who have loved Jesus and lived out the gospel. If you're here today and you're struggling because of a burden you have, a burden you have for a situation, for a family member, for a mom or a dad, for a child or for a grandchild, I want to invite you to the altar. I want you to know that God knows your circumstance. He cares about you. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a protector and a defender of those who are struggling. Would you bring your concerns to the Lord and trust Him? Would you exhibit that continual in prayer type of person who depends on God for those needs and circumstances? Stand with me, if you will, as we enter this time of invitation. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that godly mom to Robert Moffat, whose encouragement and advice sent him to the mission field. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege that we have to hear the gospel, many of us through our parents, through my mom and through their moms. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those today that are struggling, for those who struggle is a grieve, grieving a mom who is no longer with them. I pray that you give them comfort. Pray for those today that are struggling with infertility or singleness or isolation, that you would help them to know, Lord God, that you are their protector and defender. You are their support in their relationship. I pray, Heavenly Father, for that mom and their grandmom in the room that is struggling with a, a sense of separation or estrangement from a child or grandchild. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help them to know that you're a God who will comfort and who will heal, and you're a God who can bring restoration to that estrangement. You're the only God that can do that. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just that. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those in the room that just need to express gratitude for the mom that meant so much to them. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this day would be a day where they can give thanks, even for that mom who's no longer with them. Lord, we thank you for the care that you have for us, and I pray, Lord, that through the love you've shown us, you would help us to show that love back to our loved ones, our family members, and our church members. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.